0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to EPIC Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson and this is a Just In Time episode entitled The Emergencies Act, a Canadian First. Unfortunately, neither Josh nor Gillian were able to join me on such short notice, but I am joined by Professor Jack Lindsay, who is kind enough to make the time to speak with us despite being overwhelmed by interview requests on the topic of the Emergencies Act. And as you're likely aware, the Emergencies Act has now been used in Canada for the very first time. We truly are living through a historic moment, one which deserves some extra attention and understanding, so that is what we'll try to do today, and review what you need to know about the Emergencies Act. All this and more on this episode of EPIC Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Professor Jack Lindsay is one of our favourite recurring guests on the podcast and has written extensively about the current state of emergency management legislation in Canada. He is recognised across the world as an expert on the topic and has been interviewed a lot recently on the historic enactment of the hitherto unused government emergency powers. In a previous episode from 2018, we discussed the history and evolution of the Emergencies Act from previous legislation like the War Measures Act, and he actually made the prediction that it might take a pandemic for the Emergencies Act to be used. But today, we're not going to focus on what exactly is going on in the news. There's better sources for that. We're trying to focus on what the Act is and is not, how it's activated, and what checks and balances are in place. Additionally, what authorities and powers does it grant and what myths and misinformation might you need to be careful of in both social media and mainstream media? Now, as a quick disclaimer, all of this is happening very quickly. Uh, And though we've been very careful not to comment too much on perishable information, we don't know what we don't know. So if you're listening to this at any other time than February 2022, there may have been some things that change. But enough with the disclaimers. Please enjoy this very informative and very important interview with Professor Jack Lindsay, recorded 15th of February, 2022.
1: So, when we look at the Emergencies Act, uh, I think we do have to put it in context, right? So, we are in a rule of law country, and Canada has commitments to our international partners through the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights to promise, you know, we've we've um, signed on that we won't trample on or, or derogate from some basic human rights. But at the same time, we recognize that uh, there are times when some of those rights um, do have to be suspended or put aside because of the situation, the contingencies that we're facing. An easy example of this is uh, we don't have to show our papers when we travel from city to city or when we go to a different province, like in some countries where you do have to get a permit even to travel um, domestically. But if we evacuate an area because of wildfire, people can't go in there and we may grant some permanent residents the opportunity to go back in and they will have to stop and show their papers to do it. That idea that sometimes we can limit people's uh, civil rights because of the emergency is is why we have to have this legislation. And in a rule of law society, it has to be decided beforehand, right? We aren't doing this on the fly. So one of the things with the Emergencies Act is that they can't use the act to change what's in the act. So they've declared it um, the way it is. And back in 1988, they felt that a fine of not exceeding $500 for a summary conviction and an indictment not exceeding $5,000 would be a stiff penalty. And so they're not going to be able to change that. Um, so that's one thing I'm going to be watching, right, is to see how um, those penalties come in. But it's it, this highlights a crucial part that, in a way, the Emergencies Act is a pledge um, between the federal government and our citizens. The same way in, in the provinces, the emergency measures legislation is basically saying if we really have to, this is how this is what we'll do. But we won't do more than that. Um, but it's in that sense, it's a social contract, right? That um, if we really need to, we can use these powers. We won't use them often. We won't use them for long. We won't use them where they're not necessary.
0: So that's really interesting, and that that is the hot topic to debate right now. And I like that you've made the point that really that is the main. Tactic that is the main strategy of all emergency management response is to basically get rid of civil liberties so you can solve the problem, whether it's an evacuation, basically forcing people out of their homes or limiting access to an area that was uh, previously publicly accessible. Like, it is interesting to reflect on the fact that that is basically our only strategy for, for protection, but a little bit beside the point for today. Uh, what I've, I'm hearing is that this act from 1988 has not kept up with inflation um, for for some of the fines. And uh, because it's never been used before, there's probably some confusion around uh, the authorities. And and not only is it an act that grants powers, but is it, it is also supposed to be something that has these checks and balances in. So maybe as a, a framing question for the act, like what was this actually built for back in 1988?
1: Well, it, it was built to answer the concerns from um, the DARE report after the FLQ crisis and the Supreme Court rulings around the Anti-Inflation Act in, in the mid-70s about under what circumstances... Could the federal government um, intervene in matters that are are constitutionally provincial matters? So they had to sort that out, and we had nothing other than the War Measures Act, which this replaced. But uh, the Emergencies Act replaced the War Measures Act the way the internet replaced the telegraph. Right? It it's it wasn't just a renaming of it uh, or an adjustment or amendment. It is a t- Totally, totally different piece of legislation. And a lot of that was driven by two things and the, and the timing. One, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau in 1970 and the use of the war measures in the FLQ crisis and his famous uh, comment about just watch me. And I would encourage all emergency managers to watch that entire seven-minute segment and not just the 30-second clip of him laughing and saying, well, just watch me. Because it it came as part of a much longer conversation with the reporter, weighing this very question, how far will a government go suppressing the rights of many in order to protect um, the rights of of the few, like the targets of the terrorism and, and things? And on the other side, how far does our right to disagree and dissent and to protest, how far does that go? And, and in the FLQ crisis, um, you know, when it, it went as far as kidnapping and murder and really 60 years of bombings and, and other unrest in Quebec. So we had to have legislation that dealt with those kinds of emergencies, like the FLQ crisis, better and more appropriately than the War Measures Act. Also, in the 70s, um, we had seen an increased appreciation that the measures we were taking and planning for civil defense could be better used and uh, appropriately used for natural and technological hazards. You know, we had the Mississauga train derailment, uh, the biggest evacuation at the time in in Canadian history. Uh, And so I think the government was realizing we need a set of tools for dealing with these emergencies. And then at the same time, In the mid-80s, as Mulroney was campaigning for prime minister, it was the same time that the Japanese Canadians were seeking compensation and an apology for the atrocious internments in the Second World War, which were done legally under the War Measures Act, right? It it, it was morally wrong, but they were using a a set of powers that were written in 1914, right? It was a different society. So those three things, I think, came together. An appreciation for legislation that we could use in natural technological disasters, legislation that we could use for domestic unrest, a recognition that what we went through with the Korean conflict, which is where the phrase international emergency came from, this idea that Canada might be involved in a situation that they didn't want to declare war, but they also realized that, that we were struggling. And keep in mind the lawmakers in the 80s would have lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis. They would have seen the, you know, the IRA bombings in England. They would have seen international terrorism. And then, of course, as a country, we needed the legal power to declare war on another country. But I I cycle back to this fact that in a rule of law society, you have to have the laws. You have to describe what you're going to do ahead of time. It has to be debated by our elected officials. And that's what makes it. Legal, right?
0: <laughs> so this is, as you say, the, the rule of law, and let's kind of unpack the law, uh, this act a little bit more. What are the types of disasters that uh, this this act outlines, uh, and then maybe we can focus in on the sure. public order emergency.
1: It is a two step process, and we saw that um, now in the order and council that came out. Um, on February 15th of 22 to um, declare the emergency. The first one is, is it a national emergency, right? And so all four of them have to clear that, that it either seriously endangers life and safety beyond the capacity of the provinces to deal with, or threatens the ability of Canada to preserve sovereignty, security, and, and territorial integrity. The important piece there is... The reference to the province in the first one and about the life and and safety, because that is really the public welfare emergency. The second part, threatening the ability of Canada, the government of Canada to preserve sovereignty, that is a federal matter. We're starting to see a little bit of the divide between province and federal government responsibilities.
0: So it has to be something national. Uh, And what are those four types of things that the right is.
1: so then yeah so then there's the public welfare emergency which is what we would think of as natural and technological hazards they list off a few examples and they again the situation where those kinds of events have to be as serious as to be a national emergency and then as we move to the uh, public order emergency it it changes the the nature of the events right we're starting to talk about matters of civil um, disorder rather than natural disorder, if if you will, in a disaster. And in particular, it makes that reference to the threats to the security of Canada and uses the definition from the Canadian Securities Intelligence Services Act, um, which is in a way perhaps unfortunate because as soon as you bring in CSIS, it again riles people up. Um, That definition has been key to, I think, why this is happening. And it also speaks a lot to, as emergency managers, as practitioners, the need for us, um, not as lawyers, because most of us aren't, I'm not, um, but to read the act and read sections completely. So the threats to Canada mean, and I'm just gonna um, paraphrase because you can look it up online, but espionage or sabotage that's against Canada. Um, B is the foreign influenced activities within or relating to Canada that are detrimental to the interests of Canada and are one of the pieces that they're gonna be hanging on but also activities within Canada relating to threat or use of acts of violence for the purpose of achieving a political, religious, or ideological objective within Canada. So whether you see the current Uh, protests as ideological or just political. I would say they're just political, that it's more about how the government should run more nanny state, right, the more to the left, or whether we should be uh, free market, every man for themselves, kind of to the right. It also talks about any activities with the intent to overthrow the government, which would be more like the FLQ crisis, but it ends with but does not include lawful advocacy, protest, or dissent unless carried on in conjunction with the other activities above. So when we see the combination of the funding coming in, perhaps through the, the crowdfunding sources from international donors, you know, on the, even on the boundary between legal and, and illegal, uh, I think that's where they're, they're raising this concern. So that's why we end up in the public order emergency section of, of the Act.
0: And then just quickly, what were the other two?
1: Right. So the international emergency really reflects what happened with the Korean conflict where Canada didn't want to declare war. Um, I think the lawmakers of the, of the day in the 1980s would have also thought about the Cuban Missile Crisis and um, a few other similar events, the uh, Iranian hostage taking of the U.S. embassy, thinking about times where international affairs have gone to a very dark place, but we're not yet ready to declare war. And that we can turn the country's economy and resources towards supporting our allies or otherwise support the, the international activities. And then war emergency, which is just what it says. And all four of them require consultation with the provinces uh, before the government enacts them. But that consultation, the obligations diminish as we go up, I suppose, that, that scale. It's, it's very clear in public welfare emergencies where the provinces would normally be the lead that the federal government has to um, work with the provinces and, and demonstrate how they're going to bring in extra powers. It, it's the same with the public order emergency, though. There is a, a bit of an out. If they, if they don't feel that they can consult with a provincial government without undermining the, the actions they're intending to take, they can keep that to themselves. And I think that really reflects the FLQ crisis, right? That if a provincial government, the actual government comes out and says, we don't want to be part of Canada anymore, the federal government shouldn't have to consult with that province to say, well, this is how we're going to stop you. (laughs) That's that's fair enough. Um, And then international emergency and war emergency because they are sovereignty issues and federal government jurisdiction entirely, uh, the consultations become more of a courtesy Um, And also, as we go through to war emergency, the the constraints placed on the government under a declaration also fall off. And so in a war emergency, uh, the government does not have very many constraints on it, other than those ones about the fundamental human rights, not treating people based on race or color or ethnicity. One piece that does come up in public welfare, public order and international emergency is that the government of Canada cannot nationalize police forces. Policing is a provincial matter. We have small town cops. We have RCMP officers working on contract in towns and cities like North Vancouver and other places. And we have OPP and and other provincial police. But only in a war emergency can the, the national government nationalize that police force and say, okay, we're going to treat all the police as our federal agents. So any comments right now about using the act to take over the police or to replace um, municipal police is just, again, a, a, a misstating of what's really happening.
0: One of the comments that Prime Minister Trudeau made when he uh, declared that he was going to be using this act was that it would give extra tools to, to law enforcement. Let's focus in on that public order emergency. What right. other tools, what other powers uh, are actually accessible through this act that wouldn't be accessible through a provincial state of emergency or something?
1: I think we have to be careful to not confuse provincial and federal jurisdiction with provincial and federal geography, right? The the constitution divides powers up between what the federal government's responsible for and what the provinces are responsible for. And in this situation, I, I think what we're facing is the federal government has reached a point where it wants to make quick changes to the federal legislation around the proceeds of crime and terrorism funding legislation. Minister Freeland said that they would take that forward and there would be amendments to that act. That will take months, right, through the um, drafting and through the House and Senate, but they want to use it now. And so what what they're looking for under using the the powers under a public order emergency is to be able to issue regulations and orders relating to legislation that is federally passed, that are federal responsibilities. So the one that we're looking at is what changes they can make to the proceeds of crime and anti-terrorism legislation so that we treat the crowdfunding websites uh, the same way we treat all of the other financial organizations in Canada, um, to make sure that those sites aren't being used to funnel money into organizations or into activities that are of a criminal nature, And so I think a big piece of this is that it's about the federal government's jurisdiction, not the federal government's location, if if you will.
0: What about other authorities? What other authorities could extend, curtail, review uh, the enactment of, of these powers?
1: So the Emergencies Act was also designed to provide all those protections and in that process that was really lacking in the War Measures Act. So once the governor and council, uh, prime minister and cabinet, issue the declaration, it has to go to both houses of parliament for confirmation. And either one of those houses, like the Senate or the House of Commons, can uh, deny or, or turn away the proclamation. And then when the emergencies in effect, 10 senators or 20 members of parliament can bring forward a motion to end the state of emergency. So there is parliamentary oversight. And one of the things that a a prime minister would have to do, especially in a minority government, is make sure that those powers are being exercised in a way that the parliament respected and continued to support those actions. So this, this act could not be used to turn our prime minister into a dictator because the other parliamentarians in our system would vote it down, and then they wouldn't have that power anymore. And then um, public order is for 30 days; it's the shortest of the four emergencies. It probably reflects the fact that public order is going to be the one that draws the most concern about civil rights, and that, that we should be doing that in short bursts. Uh, but again, the the government's going to have to go through the, essentially the same cycle. They're going to have to go back to the house for. Um, confirmation of an extension. So there's a lot more parliamentary oversight by our elected officials than the War Measures Act, which is why Pierre Trudeau could say, just watch me, because there wasn't any other real oversight. Not to be political in, in any sense, but I feel that Canada was lucky at the time that we did have a prime minister who understood that balance, and whether you agree with what Trudeau did in the FLQ crisis or not, We have seen a lot of countries um, like Egypt and what is now Myanmar. Egypt was run essentially under emergency powers for decades. Again, that was where we could have been at with the FLQ crisis and the War Measures Act, and why now with the Emergencies Act, we'll never get there again.
0: So not only are there some checks and balances uh, worked into the system, but as I understand it, there's actually a mandatory parliamentary review Mm-hmm. Every time it's used, you know, that being once so far, what do you expect uh, to be some sticky wicked areas around that review?
1: So, yes, the, the last part of the act, and I, I am confident that all of the federal lawyers and things have pointed this out um, to the prime minister, but Section 63, within 60 days after the end of the declaration, they have to cause an inquiry to be held. And then that inquiry has to report within 360 days or basically a year to House of Commons and Senate, to the to the Parliament. So I had speculated back in 2020 that one of the reasons that the government may not have wanted to use the Emergencies Act under public welfare for the pandemic is that an inquiry into the federal government's preparedness for pandemics is something that they probably didn't want to have the spotlight put on. They are now inevitably going to have the spotlight put on how we got to this point and how these powers were exercised. And my hope is that one of the results of this is we see changes both to the Emergencies Act so that there are certain pieces that are updated, not just the fine amounts, but other pieces that might uh, better reflect the 21st century. But also it comes at the time, and it'll be interesting to see if, if a listener is listening to this a year from now or something, if, if this prediction comes true, that because we've split, the prime minister split the mandate and all of the RCMP and law enforcement parts that used to be within the Solicitor General, from the preparedness piece that Bill Blair has taken with him when he's gone over to the PM uh, cabinet office, sort of lays the groundwork for the creation of a Canadian emergency management agency under the minister responsible for emergency preparedness, and putting what had been the Solicitor General back together as the Solicitor General, right? Uh, um, covering RCMP, Border Security, CSIS, and the parole Board. You know, it's one of those four of these things are, are alike. One of these things is not like the others. And maybe this is a time for us to recognize that the Emergency Management Act, not the Emergencies Act, but the Emergency Management Act is very good. It's just not being implemented well because it's not being implemented by a distinct agency that has the expertise. So that's what I'm hoping comes from the inquiry. And we'll maybe um, you can give me a call back in a year and we'll see how that unfolds.
0: I'm sure we will. And and that would certainly fit the trend of evolution of emergency management in Canada is that kind of fits and starts after a big response is when we actually fix stuff instead of uh, before, unfortunately. Now, There's a lot of debate around this particular act. Uh, It is the first time it's ever been used. So, uh, you know, we don't know if everything will go perfectly or how everything will fit together. But there's also a lot of misinformation and, and maybe even some uh, disinformation out there. What are some rumors or bits of misinformation that you'd want to put to rest or address for emergency managers?
1: I, I think the first one is that public welfare and public order emergencies, uh, the federal government is limited to take action in concert with the provinces and to not inhibit the provinces from taking their own action. And really, it won't mean anything to a, to one province that it doesn't mean to all of Canada through the federal legislation, right? The, the changes to um, any financial tracking or those things are going to happen to all the institutions across Canada, not just in one province. It's going to happen nationwide. And whether or not the Canadian government provides support to provinces um, in particular sites like Coots or Ottawa City or um, Fredericton or wherever else, that will be on a case-by-case basis, um, and it shouldn't be seen in the sense that the federal government is taking control of provincial matters. Uh, they, they can't. So I, I think that's one. I saw in a, an international news gathering agency that will remain unnamed, uh, they said that the Emergencies Act overrules the provinces, and that's just not the case. And that is, again, a disappointing point about how the, the legislation is often mis, misexplained And I've been very careful. And I even, in an interview on the news yesterday, corrected a previous guest who who said, This is just the War Measures Act, as if it had just been renamed. They're trying to use it as a shorthand to link it back to the FLQ crisis and to Pierre Trudeau. um, And I really feel that that is a dangerous comparison to make. The other myth. You know the, the fact that it hasn't been used before, you know, we haven't used it for 30 years and we're using it once. I don't know why they think that that means it's going to be something become easier to use. The, the standard of what is a national emergency will remain. The consultation with the provinces will remain. Um, the limits on the powers remain. In the next event, whether it's a giant earthquake in Vancouver or, you know, a, a meteor spawn tsunami along the East Coast or whatever you want to say, they will have to go through the same process. Is this a national emergency? Do the provinces want in a public welfare emergency our help or in a public order emergency, you know, how can we support their their local policing, which is a, a provincial function, so this idea that it's a power grab or the genie out of the bottle just isn't isn't true. Um, you know, it, it does not create a um, a dictatorship, which sadly um, some international news agents have tried to say that that this is is turning um, Prime Minister Trudeau into a dictator. Rhetoric it's just not true. It, it's just political rhetoric from opponents, I suppose.
0: So basically, the slippery slope argument doesn't really apply here. And in fact, if uh, we're to learn anything from the massive changes that happened after the last, uh, the War Measures Act was enacted, and then never used again and changed drastically, it sort of seems like it's almost a slippery uphill slope. (laughs) And I'm sure that uh, review will reveal a few things as well.
1: I I think that one of the questions that will definitely have to be answered is why wasn't it used in the outset of the pandemic, I believe that the answer that will, will hang around the fact that healthcare, that sort of health delivery is a provincial matter, and the government has the Quarantine Act, and it has other public health legislation that it was using, and it has the other um, national or federal government powers around the airlines and cross-border traffic. They were able to use all of those things, so they didn't need to declare. Here, we're seeing them have that need.
0: Now, one of the other areas of confusion that I've seen was when the powers actually come into effect. So there was the consultation phase that happened a few days ago, and then basically a public uh, media announcement. Was that the declaration or proclamation? When did these powers actually come into effect?
1: They came into effect when the order in council was passed, because it speaks to that in the legislation as well. The effective date is the date of the proclamation. I happen to have a copy in front of me. It seems like a a repetitive document. it, It starts off with a series of whereas paragraphs that lay out the context. It basically establishes what is the context in which we feel we have to declare and then there is the section that says, thereupon the recommendation of the minister. Per Excellency of the Governor General and Council orders a proclamation be made declaring a state of emergency throughout the country, justified, justifying extraordinary measures on a temporary basis. And then it repeats many of the things that were in the justification as powers or as orders under the, the Act. And I'm sure we'll see more over the next day or two as the legislative lawyers and, and scribes put together the details about how they're going to order the crowdfunding inclusion and that thing. It's probably also why it didn't go to the House today. The House was sitting, but they do have seven sitting days to bring it forward for confirmation. I would believe that that is largely to give them time to make sure that they actually have the details laid out in a way that isn't, as you said, just what the prime minister said at a microphone, but actually the the documented orders. We do this in government all the time. Legislation is hard to change. So we have legislation that empowers the minister to create regulations, which are easier to change. And then the provincial and and federal cabinet have this ability to also issue um, orders in council for very specific issues. And that wouldn't necessarily need to go to the legislature or the parliament for a full debate. And so this is just our democracy at work. This is, there's no shortcut sort of special process happening here. Like we are going through the steps that are laid out in the law. And, you know, I, I become disheartened when I hear people try to suggest that, that what the government's doing, you know, why are they waiting so long or, or why aren't they telling us this or that as if it's anything more than just the speed of government, <laughs>
0: Now, we've chatted about the law, we've chatted about the authorities, we've chatted about the process. What does this mean, brass tacks, for municipal and provincial emergency managers? How is their life going to change from from two days ago? Right.
1: Almost all of the provinces, with the exception of uh, Newfoundland and Quebec is kind of always a bit different because I'm never confident that the English version is sort of true to the intent of the original French version. But BC, Alberta, October, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia all have wording that says under a state of emergency, they can authorize and require people to perform a function or a service that they are competent to, to provide. Ontario specifically says authorizing but not requiring people to provide a service that they are competent to do. So. I heard a, uh, a colleague just last night on television say, I don't know why the feds are necess- are needed to bring in the tow trucks in Ottawa, the province has that power too. Well, not under Ontario's legislation, they can authorize um, somebody like myself, I have a, used to have a class four license so I could drive a vehicle with lights and sirens, I don't have that anymore. But if in an emergency it was necessary for me to drive an ambulance, they could authorize me to do it without having to date my test again and everything. In Ontario and all the other provinces, um, they could require me. Um, Ontario's legislation doesn't have that wording. It has the authorizing but not requiring phrase. And then in the discussion when the prime minister announced the measures, he made specific reference to bringing tow trucks across the border from Detroit, to clear some of the trucks on the ambassador bridge and that's what they made me think about well why didn't ontario just do it from their side and i believe it's because they couldn't and i'm not surprised that heavy tow truck drivers that depend on the truckers for their business and are of a probably of a, a brethren like um society don't want to be seen to be doing this so now that there is the Uh, state of emergency under the federal legislation it does under public order um, allow the federal government to require a person to provide a a service that they're competent to provide Um, so there's a little bit of speculation there and I I admit that but it is interesting that a number of other premiers like here in Manitoba and and in Alberta um, have spoken out against the Prime Minister and um, Premier Ford in Ontario who is normally Um, not the closest of allies with the PM uh, was one that is saying, yes, this is something that we should be doing. And I put those two together, I may be wrong, but I put those together is that because Ontario couldn't exercise that power themselves under their law, that they needed the federal government to bring in um, the powers under the Emergencies Act for that. And why did it take three weeks? Well, I don't think the Canada would have accepted a national emergency just to get tow truck drivers. But when the information started coming out about how the crowdsource funding was coming, so much of it from international donors that the Canadian government couldn't legally at the time find out who they were. If somebody had just gone into a Toronto Dominion branch bank in, say New York and said, I want to give a million dollars into this bank account, that would have all been traced under our current law. But if they put it through crowdsourcing, we just don't have the, we just didn't have the power right now. So Again, in in hindsight and in speculation, I think that it was when those two things finally aligned, the federal government had due cause to exercise regulations relating to federal jurisdiction in regards to finance. That gave them a clear and legitimate reason to declare. And then once they declared, they can use the additional power to be able to require people to provide a service such as um, clearing the barricades
0: jack lindsay thank you so much for joining us for this epic podcast i know you have been uh, just inundated with interview requests so very much appreciate this if you'd like to hear jack lindsay talk about this in more detail turn on the news and he's also very well published on uh, all sorts of different things but particularly emergency management legislation
1: thanks, thanks very for much for
0: having me on i always enjoy learning from jack and this is such a hot topic at the moment Uh, even since yesterday new information is arising around the kinds of uses of this act and in a ctv article by rachel aiello entitled five notable new powers enacted by the government she well she does what the title says and those new powers that are being used are safeguarding vaccine clinics no kids at protest sites protecting war memorials compelling service from Things like tow truck companies and then civil litigation immunity, which means that banks or uh, again, tow truck drivers or whatnot can follow government orders without being at risk of being sued. So certainly there's lots more uh, coming. And if you're interested in, in this topic, I'd encourage you to follow Professor Leah West and Professor Wesley Work, who have some conflicting and well-founded views on the use of this act uh, and in fact had a bit of an online debate on the topic the link to which i will share in the show notes so lots more to follow and perhaps there will be a part two to this episode in the future but for now that is all for this episode of epic podcast a big thanks to jack lindsay for making time to speak with us about this historic event Just before I go, this episode was brought to you in part by Taproot Edmonton. Taproot publishes weekly rounds up on a variety of topics, uh, including food, tech, health, and innovation. Taproot gathers up the headlines and happenings on these files and delivers them to your inbox. You can get one or two of them for free. If you want more, become a Taproot member. Then you can get as many as you want, plus other perks for just $10 a month or $100 a year. Get informed at taprootedmonton.ca. This episode is also brought to you in part by Rumi, who has uh, developed a quick little presentation, which I will play right
1: now. Hi there, I'm Brendan, a certified home inspector with Rumi. Do you have a problem that needs fixing? Whether it's big or small, inside
0: or outside, let me help you find out what's really going on. You can call me by phone, or we can take a look together over video chat. Visit rumi.ca,
1: that's R-U-M-I.ca and go to Ask a Home Inspector to book your appointment with me today.
0: You've been listening to an EPIC Podcast production. A proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada, and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. As always, EPIC Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go, the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username epicpodcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, Current Relevant Canadian.